0: We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haines and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. you'll need it. By the way, that legendary part, I did not put in the title. That was the publisher. (laughs) I um, enjoy um, coming back and seeing many friends in the audience, and at this particular time, uh, with so much that has been going on, a lot of it here in in Texas, um, I'm uh, pleased to be able to come back and give some of you an update of what you've heard me say before, and for some of you to give the speech that my Dear wife, Sharon, over here, uh, say hi, Sharon, hi, Sharon. <laughs> uh, says she can give the speech for me because she calls it my doom and gloom speech, so, <laughs> but uh, I hope not to uh, leave you uh, feeling uh, that we are faced with doom and gloom, but to give you a realistic picture of a phenomena that uh, we as a society have been facing essentially before we were even created as a country, and yet have only come to recognize as a significant problem really since 9-11, even though there were many, many prior terrorist acts that should have, and for those those of us in the business did, claim our attention. But the reason I say that terrorism was a part of the founding of our country is because the French hired Indians... The British hired Indians, and their purpose was to go out and raid frontier settlers in the territories they were claiming, and to butcher them, to scalp them, to burn them. And the reason they did that was to terrorize other settlers as they came into the territory. So right at the founding of our society, of our nation, uh, acts of terrorism were committed by the opposing forces using surrogates. Of course, they also engaged in direct battle, but using surrogates to go out and commit atrocious, heinous crimes so that it would frighten the civilian population and have them withdraw from the area. We, of course, saw the use of terrorism uh, after the Civil War. We actually saw it before the Civil War. Uh, we had uh, jayhawkers from Kansas raiding Missouri and, and the uh, redlegs uh, from Missouri going over to uh, Kansas because they were on opposite sides of the issue on slave states versus non-slave states. And you had civilians that formed militias that went over and raided uh, small towns and villages before the war uh, to try and intimidate uh, that state and its uh, legislature and governor from taking a position uh, contrary to, to their particular belief. Terrorism uh, exists not as an entity that you go to war with. We say we have a war on terrorism. That's like saying we have a war on an M1 rifle. Terrorism is a weapon, it is a tactic used uh, in the asymmetrical warfare against opponents. Uh, It is a tactic used most frequently against innocents, civilians, uh, women and children, because that causes more what? More terror, more shock, more uh, really a total breakdown of our belief in what humanity uh, can do and should do to each other. So the more horrendous the act, uh, the more terroristic the act, the greater the impact. When the first World Trade Center bombing occurred in 1993, February 1993, the, several of the participants were caught right away. Uh, Two got away and were caught later and and are now serving uh, life in prison. But the leader of that group, after he was caught in Pakistan and brought back uh, by a rendition to the United States, as he was flying over uh, with uh, FBI agents uh, accompanying him, and he looked down and one of the agents, uh, who was a wisecracking Boston Irishman, uh, Parks, you remember... uh, that uh, Bill Gavin never had an a opportunity uh, to go by, that he didn't have something uh, smart to say. Um, he looked down, Bill Gavin looked down and said, you see those two towers? They're still standing. And Ramzi Youssef, who was a very ranking op- uh, operational officer in Al-Qaeda, said, but for how long? And of course, That is a warning, but it could have been any other building or any other facility. He was simply saying, we're not through. You can be right 99 times. If we're right one time, then we win. And that's pretty much the situation. Societies that have gone through long years of terrorist activity, and I'll call to your attention Great Britain with the Irish issue and Israel with the Palestinian issue, Those societies suffer many, many, many more acts of terrorism than we ever had, and yet they have learned to come to grips with the reality of terrorist acts without ripping and tearing their government and its agencies apart. We have not done that. Uh, And after 9-11, several things occurred which I will talk about. But let me go back and tell you why we should have been prepared for 9-11, and why we should have known what they were going to do. And the simple answer is because they kept telling us what they were going to do. They kept demonstrating to us what they were going to do by doing actions elsewhere, and we simply did not believe it. I'd like to bring it home to you because um, after the bombing of the uh, the World Trade Center in February of 19. 93, um, they planned to carry out a series of, of attacks against other iconic landmarks, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, the, the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, uh, United Nations Buildings, um, uh, the Federal Building. And fortunately, uh, we were able to, to stop that, and, and actually, uh, I was still in the Bureau then, and the Dallas Division did play a part in that. In fact, the driver of the truck that went into the basement of the World Trade Center, came from Dallas, went there to drive the truck, and then came back, and of course was arrested. But uh, uh, he had experience driving trucks. He worked at a hamburger uh, joint over here in uh, uh, southeast Dallas. And uh, they didn't have the confidence in the other members of the cell to be able to drive and maneuver that truck into the basement. So Ramsey Youssef goes down his list Picks up the phone and calls him. He goes from Dallas to New York, drives the truck, and of course that was not a suicide bombing. They, that was a leave-behind bomb, like uh, Timothy McVeigh used in Oklahoma City. But if we go back and look at the modern era, and of course uh, the uh, the attack upon the Olympics uh, in Munich, uh, that brought terrorism to everybody's mind and attention. But that was attacks by Palestinians against Israelis and that had been going on since 1947 so it was a terrible horrific act but it was one which was not out of the ordinary except for the venue and the venue of course made it a a matter of global theater and uh, the horrific consequences that occurred at that time well you know that caught the attention of those of us in, in the service because not long thereafter, uh, we had the Olympics at Lake Placid, which I had just been uh, made assistant director uh, in charge of the Criminal Investigative Division, which had that oversight responsibility for security around special events. And that was my first one. And uh, Lake Placid is a small area. And the New York State Troopers, the New York State Police, and the FBI were it. There was a sheriff's office, and, and they did uh, primarily traffic. Uh, but we set up a model there with the New York State Police, a, a superb organization, and we developed an Olympic security plan that is in use today. It was, had been in use uh, in L.A. It was in use in Seoul, Korea. It was in use uh, in Barcelona. Uh, I actually lectured the Chinese about that system before the Olympics in Beijing, uh, of course, in it, it was in use in Atlanta. Uh, we took that opportunity to say that the Olympics are a global venue. It has the attention of the whole world, and therefore those who want to do harm uh, to either our society or to uh, any other government that uh, is represented, uh, there is an opportunity to do that, and it will receive worldwide attention even in this time of 24-hour, seven-day-a-week club coverage. And, of course, we unfortunately saw that consequence uh, come with the Atlanta bombing uh, that um, uh, claimed uh, so much uh, attention and so much difficulty uh, because one individual in an unsecured area was able to leave a bag behind, and, of course, the bag detonated and and killed uh, one person immediately and one later. And uh, it took some some time, some years, to actually find the right person and then to actually execute the arrest warrant on that person. The time that I want to bring to your attention was uh, in uh, 1979. Um, 1979 was extremely important for two reasons. One, uh, we had the situation with the Soviets... Uh, invading Afghanistan, Um, an outright aggressive move uh, against, uh, they were not our allies, but uh, they were uh, a government uh, that we recognized, and uh, we feared the expansion of Russia all the way into the Indian Ocean, and uh, we had uh, the intent to try and help the Mujahideen uh, that was formed around Afghans and other uh, Arabs and Muslims from really around the world that came in were trained primarily by the Pakistani uh, security service and uh, supplied and uh, funded by the Saudis and the Americans. Uh, one of the people that was in that group, the Mujahideen, was named Osama bin Laden. So Osama, to some extent, got his start being an ally, quote unquote, of the United States. The other factor that occurred in 1979, which completely changed our world, was that uh, uh, President Carter decided that uh, the Shah, was a a Shah of Iran, was uh, no longer uh, useful uh, and uh, withdrew his support from the Shah. And the Shah ran a very hard-handed regime. Unless you look at all of the rest of the Middle East, uh, and he had more people going to universities, he had more freedom of religion, he had more freedom of movement, uh, he had uh, more young people being trained in the in the professions and sciences than anyone else in the middle east his uh, His secret police was still brutal uh, they were fighting against the radical Islamists. And they, it was a no-holds-barred no holds type of battle. I actually had the opportunity to, once the Shah had fled, to uh, take him uh, from New York City when he left uh, Iran and came here. And he, as you know, he was very ill. And to take him uh, to San Antonio, where he was uh, uh, taken to uh, Fort Sam and put into the hospital and then they made arrangements to send him off to Panama and, and elsewhere. But the consequence of us abandoning the Shah is it was much like when we pulled the funding and support away from the South uh, Vietnamese, everything crumbled. Uh, and so all of the supporters, including the intelligence service, they got out with uh, their families and the family jewels and whatever they could get and in came the Ayatollah Khomeini from exile in France. And almost immediately, they set up an Islamic republic. They create a Revolutionary Guard. Uh, they, the next year, create uh, an organization which, until 9-11, had killed more Americans than any other, Hezbollah. Uh, and they set it up in the Bacaw Valley and in, uh, and in uh, Lebanon, uh, the border, the northern border. Well, the southern border of Lebanon, northern border of Iran. I'm sorry, uh, of Israel. Um, so we had the beginning of a fundamentalist Islamic movement uh, with uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Of course, it's a Shia side of the equation. Come on in, folks. You're just missing the warm-up, that's all. <laughs> and um, the creation of... His Revolutionary Guard, which uh, is a terrorist apparatus, and uh, is what was used primarily to put down any opposition in the recent elections. Uh, it was also the vehicle used to create, uh, establish, train, and support the Hezbollah in the Bekaa and, and South Lebanon. Two years later, our embassy is bombed, and I think 36 killed and. 50-some wounded uh, in Beirut, and then the Marine barracks bombing, uh, 242 young Marines. Uh, We got involved in that, even though we had no jurisdiction, when I got a call from the commandant, uh, General P. X. Kelly, and said, uh, Buck, I'd like for some FBI agents to go to uh, Beirut and conduct an investigation. I said, general, we don't have any jurisdiction in Beirut, and we don't have any legal authority to do that. He said, Buck, these are Marines. I said, yes, sir, and we sent agents to Beirut. Uh, The senior agent Now, we sent our disaster team, which is the identification team, to help identify the bodies, Uh, but we also sent uh, crime scene experts, and we also sent some people to do interrogations. And uh, the uh, leader of the crime scene uh, is a gentleman by the name of Danny Deffenbaugh. And Danny, of course, years later, was my successor here in Dallas. He had also worked on the Oklahoma City bombing. But that was a, an exercise without jurisdiction. Uh, very soon thereafter, things changed because the FBI received what's called extraterritorial jurisdiction, or the long-arm statute. Uh, and that allows the FBI today, uh, which now has, I believe, 57 foreign legal attache offices, uh, but with response teams in New York, Washington, uh, Los Angeles, Honolulu, to go overseas and to conduct investigations because the law now says that if you take an American hostage, you have violated U.S. law, irrespective of whether you ever come, have ever been in the United States. And the law now says if you commit a terrorist act against the United States, its citizens, its facilities, or its entities, a la the USS Cole, you have committed a federal violation, and both of them are punishable by death. So we got pretty serious. Uh, there were a number of attacks that occurred uh, in sequence. We had attack on our uh, assistance office in Riyadh, followed by... The attack upon the the barracks uh, that the Air Force was using uh, in uh, the Western Saudi, I'm mean, Eastern Saudi Arabia, and uh, support of the uh, a- actions in in uh, in Iraq, uh, we had uh, of course the the U.S.S. Cole. We had the two East African embassy bombings, uh, Kenya and Zimbabwe. Uh, we had a continuous number of acts where it was specifically targeted. And by the way, they hit the U.S. Embassy again. Uh, in uh, Beirut and the American Embassy uh, in Kuwait, they also took, held, captured, and killed Americans as hostages. The Hezbollah uh, in um, in Lebanon. Uh, I knew the CIA CIA officer. Uh, I didn't know the Marine Colonel, but uh, I got to know his wife, who was a Marine major. I'm the one who broke the news to her that her husband was dead, had been, and had been tortured. Uh, we had a professor from American University who uh, was actually sold to Libyans to be killed uh, after uh, President Reagan sent uh, our bombers in uh, to retaliate against the attack against the Belle Disco in Germany where uh, two American servicemen had been killed. So the Ayatollah had created through what's called a fatwa, a uh, religious edict, that every... And, of course, he's Shia, so he's speaking to the Shia side of that equation. Every Muslim who is a true believer in Allah had an absolute responsibility to carry out jihad against the great Satan, meaning the United States. Any time, place that they had the capability to do so. So, during the the time uh, that I was in Washington, we were dealing with uh, organizations like uh, Black September the Abu Nidal organization, the Palestine, uh, the PFLPGC, uh, which uh, uh, we suspected of doing Pan Am 103, and it turned out, of course, not to be them. Uh, it was uh, the Libyan intelligence. But we were dealing with uh, our counterpart services, with the CIA, uh, with American intelligence, and um, you know, we knew that there was a global effort against the United States. Well, when we went in to, to Iraq at uh, Gulf uh, Storm, uh, my youngest brother was a young Army major and was the air officer, officer in the 1st Cavalry Division. So every day when I would be uh, calling over to the Pentagon and talking to their J-3, their chief of operations at the Joint Chiefs, General Tom Kelly, great guy. You saw him on television a lot. He really handled the press very well went on a book tour after the war was over and died of a heart attack. Uh, But in any case, I'd call General Kelly, and I'd say, okay, where's the first calf? what are they doing? Then he would ask me, okay, what's going on on the terrorism front? Do we have any threats? So we made sure we took care of business in the right order. But uh, uh, Larry came back uh, uh, from from the first, uh, from Desert Storm, and uh, he does uh, suffer some of the symptoms symptoms and synd- of the syndrome, but uh, he's doing well, and uh, we're, we're very proud about that. Uh, we just found out that our oldest grandson is signed up and is going to be a cavalry scout, and has uh, joined uh, the Army, uh, because uh, my great-grandfather was a cavalry scout, went to Mexico after Pancho Villa with General Pershing. Uh, they chased him all around the, the San Andreas, or San... Uh, well, I forget the mountain chain down there, but the, the mountains of uh, northern Mexico uh, brought them back and dismounted them and sent them as infantry, of all things, to, uh, to France, uh, where my uh, grandfather was gassed with mustard gas, survived but uh, uh, had severe lung damage and, and died at a young age from, uh, from emphysema and cancer. But that's a legacy in our family. My father was in the Navy, uh, my um, oldest son was in the Air Force. My youngest son was in the Army. So we've covered all the branches. Um, but we never thought in doing that that our foe would be a non-entity, non-government entity. We always thought, well, we'll be fighting the, you know, the Russians, the Germans, the Japanese, the Chinese, or somebody like that. But with the terrorist organizations, you don't have the luxury of knowing your enemy. Your enemy can be in your own ranks, as we found out tragically here uh, last week at at, uh, uh, Fort Hood. The very moment, literally, that the deputy commander, deputy commanding general of the three Corps was speaking to us here in Dallas uh, as a celebration uh, saluting the American veterans over at the Air Museum, Uh, the shooting started. Uh, at Fort Hood um, an act uh, a craven act of cowardice all these soldiers including pregnant women old, uh, older men uh, as well as young soldiers uh, were unarmed they were going through processing and that's the reason the reaction to the action that uh, took them down was by two civilian police officers employed by Fort Hood, as uh, security police on base. The soldiers were totally unarmed. Uh, he went in uh, with uh, uh, over 200 rounds of ammunition, uh, fired over 100, and would have kept killing until he himself was killed. He had gone through the traditional uh, ceremony for a shaheed, for a suicide uh, martyr. Uh, so he did not expect to come out alive. Uh, I don't know whether he's pleased with the results because uh, he's been charged with 13 counts of first-degree murder or murder um, the, under the UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, it's uh, murder with prior intent, and uh, he will never see the light of day. And I hope that he's not executed because the greatest punishment that can be him given him is to be locked up in a cell for the rest of his natural life and not be, in his own mind, going to meet Allah and all of his virgins. I think they're out of them by now, but... Uh, <laughs> the case here in, in uh, Dallas was very interesting because it shows uh, the new FBI, and I say that the FBI hasn't changed, its tools have changed, and they keep talking about changing the culture, and I've, I've told uh, Director Mueller and others the culture has always been the same, do the job necessary to stop the crime and to be able to bring those who have committed crimes to justice. So this talk about changing a culture is nonsense. Uh, The FBI was engaged in gathering intelligence in World War II uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere, ran operatives and uh, covert operations before there was a CIA. And it worked uh, primarily with uh, the army intelligence and uh, also uh, with a group that was set up uh, under Bill Dunneman, uh, a lawyer uh, to uh, carry out espionage and intelligence operations in Europe and Asia. Uh, after the war, the CIA was created in 1948, and the FBI gave up its, its intelligence responsibility in the Western Hemisphere, uh, but has always maintained its counterintelligence responsibility uh, in the United States and to, related to any activities concerning the United States. So if there's an act of espionage committed in a U.S. embassy in Buenos Aires, uh, it is now and always would have been an FBI jurisdictional matter. Not the CIA, not the State Department uh, Diplomatic Security Service, but the the FBI. So when I say it was a new new, uh, focus for the FBI, it's simply this. On 9-11, the FBI was the only entity in the world that couldn't collect public information. It couldn't take pamphlets off the streets. It couldn't take pamphlets handed out at meetings. It couldn't go on the internet and see what was being said on the websites because you had the juxtaposition of two things. The Privacy Act, which required the FBI to open a file anytime they collected information, even if they had no substantive case, And the Attorney General guidelines, which did not allow the opening of a file unless you had a criminal or intelligence predicate, meaning unless you had reason to believe that an intelligence uh, violation had or was occurring or that a criminal act within the jurisdiction of the Bureau had or was occurring or was ongoing. So literally, the local police officer, uh, your campus cop, could open cases and look at people that the FBI could not. Also, they had created, when the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed, they had created a wall. And that wall has simply said, you cannot collect criminal intelligence evidence and then share it with those people that are doing counterintelligence, foreign counterintelligence, international terrorism. And those who are doing the collection under the FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act case authority from the court, could not share information that they collected, even though it might be the same organization, and many of these terrorist organizations are involved in gun trafficking, drug trafficking, and everything else that you can think of, but they could not share the information. Nor could they share it uh, with the police officers on the Joint Terrorism Task Force unless they were working on intelligence matters that that fell within that parameter. So on 9-11, the deck was stacked against... America protecting itself. The CIA had had two directors uh, that uh, had essentially disarmed it. One, uh, Stansfield Turner, who came in with President Carter, a very bright uh, and uh, intelligent admiral that I met many times, but he thought that all intelligence could and should be collected by electronic means, intercepts and uh, surveillance satellites and so forth, and that essentially operatives on the ground, uh, were uh, useless and worthless and pretty much caused problems that uh, he didn't want to deal with. So they de-emphasized the role of the DDO, the Deputy Director of Operations, the Operational Directorate. Uh, And then we had a director of the CIA who came in and said, um, and this this was uh, actually uh, other President Clinton, uh, we don't think that CIA operatives should be dealing with nasty people. Uh, if your sources of intelligence uh, are, are drug smugglers or are part of a, a terrorist group or are uh, involved in any sort of of activities of this nature, then, then then we really shouldn't be dealing with them. Well, I don't think that if we hadn't been able to deal with Sammy the or Gravano, Uh, That we would ever convicted the Teflon Don, I can tell you that. Uh, I didn't invite my informants home for dinner, and uh, uh, I never uh, felt that we needed to. And and obviously, that was an egregious usurpation of the CIA's capability. And so, what they had was a bunch of well-trained officers sitting in the embassy and going to uh, cocktail parties and talking to the counterparts of their services but not out on the streets, not out hearing and seeing and knowing what was going on, and particularly not in the Middle East, where we had not paid much attention. The Middle East was the British and French, but not us. We didn't really get involved until the the creation of Israel, and we considered that a part of the world that we really didn't have that much interest in. Now, some will say, well, you know, when Exxon went over and they found all the oil and you had all that created then the... Uh, interest developed. Well, that's true because you had a lot of American uh, personnel and and, uh, obviously technology and and, uh, obviously we were interested in being able to acquire the oil and so forth. But I sat on the National Foreign Intelligence Board for five years. I never heard oil mentioned as a strategic interest in our counterintelligence or our strategic intelligence issues. It was not a reason that we went to war with Saddam Hussein. And uh, that was a mistake, but it wasn't the reason. Uh, Bin Laden took uh, a lot of money from his family. He created al-Qaeda for one reason, because after Desert Storm, the United States did not remove its troops. It kept a residual force in Saudi Arabia at the request of the Saudis to protect it against Saddam since Saddam had not been taken out. He had not been destroyed uh, he had kept uh, he had fled of course uh, uh, with the revolutionary i 'm sorry with the uh, Republican Guard and uh, survived a desert storm. so we had a presence in Saudi Arabia, we had a presence in Kuwait, we had a presence uh, in uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates and several other places in the Gulf um, bin Laden felt that this was a violation of the the Ummah, the homeland of the Saudi, of the uh, Muslims, and that it was up to Al-Qaeda to try and go forward and to push us out uh, through acts of terrorism because they couldn't meet us militarily. So all those instances that I named to you up to 9-11, they actually issued fatwas and made announcements on the Internet. This is what we've done. This is what we have done it for. This is what we're going to do. And bin Laden, on two occasions, issued a a fatwa, much like uh, the Ayatollah, saying, you're blessed by God if you go forward and kill Americans at any time, in any place, any opportunity that you have. So when uh, the first World Trade Center bombing occurred, it should not have been a surprise. But when 9-11 occurred, it wasn't a surprise. It's simply we were unprepared to do the things that needed to have been done, primarily from a political standpoint and the legislation, but also the American public. During the trial of these people that had uh, carried out the t- attacks against the Twin Towers initially, and the threat against the, the tunnels and the, uh, and the buildings, um, the American public was fixated on a tragic uh, soap opera called the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, look for articles in the New York Times about the terrorist trials that were ongoing and compare it with the number of headline inches that the the O.J. Simpson case was receiving. So we as a society fail to recognize a vital threat to ourselves in favor of sensationalism and uh, what I call yellow journalism. Well, When we went back in uh, after 9-11 and went into uh, Afghanistan and had an opportunity to take out the Al-Qaeda, to uh, essentially destroy the Taliban, uh, we did a great job until it was time to finish the job. And at Bora Bora, we pulled back and sent the majority of our forces into Iraq. And I'll tell you right now, Saddam Hussein was one of the nastiest people in the world, deserved to die probably more than anyone else I can think of, but we had no reason to go back in, to to go into Iraq when we should have been going full-fledged against the Taliban who was protecting al-Qaeda, who had threatened us, who had attacked us, and who posed the greatest threat to us. The second tier was Iran itself, and the third tier was North Korea, which was and by this time, right on the verge of obtaining nuclear weapons, and we had Saddam contained. Now, I never said anything about that after we went. Uh, before we went, I said, it's not a good idea. Uh, it's, it's not uh, a threat to us. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because it still is part of the debate going on, well, how fast can we draw down in Iraq to build up uh, in Afghanistan? And if we build up in Afghanistan, are we really going to stop And prevent terrorism, and the answer is uh, well. We need to take out the Taliban. We need not. We need to not allow Al Qaeda to come back in and set up their base of operations. But if we don't, and if we do, they will move elsewhere. They can move to Bangladesh. They can move uh, to the Sudan. uh, They can certainly move uh, to many places uh, throughout the world, uh, even the southern Philippines, where they can run the kind of headquarters operation that they're now running out of the the caves and the tribal areas of of Pakistan. Pakistan is a dilemma for us. We can't live with them, and we can't live without them. Um, They are turning into a much more radicalized government. Um, On the other hand, we have to have them to go after the Taliban, and, of course, they have nuclear weapons, and as we increase our relationships with the Indian government uh, it behooves us to make sure there's no regional war there because if there is, it'll spill over and it will, will if not global, it's certainly throughout uh, the Middle East and Asia. Um, have I scared you enough? I don't know. Uh, the, on the Samadhi case, uh, emails led to uh, warrants to intercept blog messages which led to the introduction of an undercover agent. Um, Who had the background and language uh, to gain his confidence. Uh, On several occasions he tried to talk somebody out of doing what he intended to do, uh, but he insisted on continuing. Uh, He suggested other targets which would have had less uh, casualties, but he wanted the most significant target that he could get in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. He looked at DFW and decided it was too hard. Uh, He um, looked at uh, one other, oh, let's see, um, it popped out of my head, but um, they settled on uh, Fountain Place because it's symbolic of Dallas. When you see the Dallas TV show, what are you looking at? You know, you're looking at Fountain Place. Uh, Whenever there is a photograph of Dallas during the football games and so forth, you see Fountain Place. So somewhat like the, the Twin Towers were symbolic of New York, and he also thought there was a lot of trade and commerce uh, out, out of Fountain Place. There's much less there than, than he thought, uh, although EPA was uh, just is glad that uh, you know, he wasn't successful. Um, but his intention was, and he told the agents, and this is all on tape, by the way, uh, and it will be heard by jury, uh, that he wanted to kill the most people that he could kill to make the greatest statement in jihad uh, in his service to Allah. Now, let me point out that being a Muslim doesn't mean you're a terrorist. Uh, Being an Arab doesn't mean you're a terrorist. Uh, The vast majority of Arabs, the vast majority of Muslims, are uh, absolutely, totally opposed to terrorist activity. Uh, uh, A very uh, well-known and uh, very uh, experienced uh, journalist, who's now a senior fellow at the CSI, Center for Strategic International Studies, Arnold Worsgrove wrote a column this week saying, essentially one tenth of the Muslim world, which is about 1.3 billion, supports uh, the radical view of Islam, primarily the Ayatollah view if they're Shia and uh, the Wahhabi view if uh, they uh, are Sunni. And of that, uh, total which would be uh, about 130 million. and of that, approximately one percent, or 1.3 million, actually support violent jihad. Does't mean they would commit violent jihad, but they support it. Out of that, probably not more than five or 6, thousand around the globe that would actually engage in violent jihad, but they could certainly get support from that 1.3 million. And uh, we've seen that uh, happen uh, in the cases that have been recently in the news. So the phenomena of terrorism, the asymmetrical warfare, because they can't face us head on, uh, will continue. Uh, We will be successful, the government of the United States, all its entities, including the police agencies that are working day in and day out through the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, of which there are now 107, Uh, fusion centers around the country, including one uh, here in Dallas and and one up in uh, Collin County, Uh, field intelligence groups, the the sharing of intelligence between agencies at the local, state, federal, regional, and international level, Uh, the majority of the plots will be intercepted and prevented. But we cannot, as a society, ever believe that we can prevent all acts of terrorism. We can't prevent acts of murder. We can't prevent acts of bank robbery and kidnapping and carjacking. So it is unrealistic for us to believe that they will never be successful. Just like Ramzi Youssef said, you know, we can fail 99 times. We only have to be successful one time. And I'm afraid based on what happened with 9-11 where you saw essentially our government tear itself apart and put it back together in a gerrymandered fashion uh, that we might not be pleased with the results. And we also saw some actions taken that I think were extra legal and unnecessary and harmed us as a society, uh, as a government of law, and we did not need to do that. What we needed to do is to allow the FBI, the CIA, uh, the DIA, and the other agencies plus the task forces to do their job under the Constitution, obeying the law, but rigorously enforcing the law. That's what we needed, that's what we need now, and that's what we have to have. And with that, I thank you, and we'll answer questions. Thank you very much. Yes, sir.
1: I think I heard uh, late today that the FBI had made the announcement that the shooter and uh, Ford Hood was not a terrorist.
0: No. Um, they, they, there is a technical defini- definition of terrorism. Uh, under the law, it's actually in the law. And what they're saying is, obviously he was a mass murderer. He was more than likely motivated by his, uh, his religious beliefs. But it did not fit the definition by law of what a terrorist is. So it will make no difference. He's charged with 13 counts of murder and 29 uh, counts of attempted murder. But from the technical standpoint, uh, it was not a, an act by a group or organization against com- c- civilians and non-combatants.
1: The uh, remarks made by uh, General Casey regarding uh, diversity, which we all recognize is an important goal uh, would you would you comment on those in terms of uh, uh, the, the the necessity for diversity, of course, uh, but at the same time, how the uh, focus of those remarks was perhaps uh, not in keeping with the priorities that we would hope the general would have.
0: I was extremely disappointed uh, in his even uh, bringing that up at the time of his uh, first uh, uh, remarks to the soldiers uh, at uh, Fort Hood. Uh, Obviously, uh, all agencies, as you said, Park, seek diversity. This was not a diversity issue. This was an issue of a a radical who should have been detected and booted out of the Army, uh, who uh, was allowed to stay in, and diversity is no excuse for allowing a person who poses a risk to our troops um, to remain in the military. And I hope at some point that he will further explain himself because I thought it was a totally inappropriate and uh, uh, harmful remark. Let me ask you what I think
1: may be a difficult question. Right now, how many Muslims are in the U.S. Army?
0: Uh, About 4,000.
1: And how would you approach that now? Would you try to go through their files? Would you go to their commanders? Would you do any type of special investigation?
0: Well, you can't uh, select out an entire element I mean, any, any more than you could uh, the Jews or, or uh, Roman Catholics. Uh, but I think there will be a focus on if there are issues that arise or if you're moving people into sensitive situations, you look to see if there are any indications of abnormal or aberrant behavior or... I mean, he was lecturing to people about the uh, the necessity to carry out jihad and. You know and, and uh, cutting people's heads off and, and, and uh, there were examples at least that have been cited in the media uh, I don't care if uh, you know what religion he was um, those kind of examples uh, should have brought scrutiny to him and have removed him from a situation where he had access to uh, to soldiers particularly soldiers that were being deployed into Afghanistan and Iraq so I think it'll cause there to be scrutiny of the process Uh, I don't believe that um, you know the four thousand Muslims are going to uh, be given the the fifth degree they're not going to be called in and polygraphed and so forth but uh, you know human nature being what it is I think commanders are going to look at who's in their inventory and and keep a keener ear open to those who have have problems now we've had other problems When I was sent out, you mentioned to take charge of the law enforcement, federal law enforcement and and the military uh, during the LA riots, I found out that the National Guard had over 200 gang members that were National Guardsmen that were there in LA. Um, My first move was I called the two star in and said, get them out of LA. One gang member sees another gang member in a uniform with an M16 and you've got a firefight. So I made sure that uh, the gang members they knew are suspected were excluded from the the theater. Uh, I think that some of that will be happening in this process as well.
1: We have a question right there in the middle. Yes, sir. Uh, Back in uh, 2001 after 9-11, there was an issue of CIA, FBI communicating with with each other. And I think it's, you know, that was, they didn't, was the problem. And, um, or weren't allowed to. And uh, we tried to fix that, or I guess we've taken steps to try to fix that. But it looks or it sounds a little bit to me by what I'm hearing about investigations and red flags and things that maybe FBI and Army CID were not uh, communicating very well uh, on this issue. Do you think we've made improvement on that or am I mistaken on my assessment?
0: Well, the so-called lack of communication between the CIA and FBI uh, before 9-11 was only on legal issues. They had senior officers in our headquarters. I uh, put senior officers before I left in CIA headquarters. Uh, I talked with Director Casey and uh, recommended that he establish the Counterterrorism Center, which he did. Uh, and he called me and asked me in to, to give advice on that. Uh, you know, He liked to talk to Judge Webster, but he knew Judge Webster wasn't an agent. Uh, so when he wanted to know something operational, he'd call me. And... Uh, if I could understand what he was mumbling, I tried to answer him. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I did, I said, You've got analysts in a different directorate, you've got operatives in a different directorate. On terrorism, you need to bring them together. They need to be able to communicate, they need to be able to focus on targets, establish um, priorities, and so forth. And he did. Uh, I met weekly uh, with senior CIA officials, uh, including the director and the DDO. Uh, we exchanged all the information we were legally entitled to exchange. We did a joint operation uh, in uh, 1987 to carry out the first uh, rendition. Um, the CIA uh, senior executive, uh, a real character by the name of Dewey Claridge, uh, was on shore uh, in Cyprus. We had a DEA informant because the CIA had no informants in, in, uh, in country, and we had none, uh, you know, we, we weren't involved in, in that business. So we had none there, um, and so um, the DEA essentially loaned us, and we had assigned to uh, the CIA the DEA informant, and then they reported, you know, to us. We had the operations, the uh, the sailboat. Uh, we uh, actually got the uh, subject brought out into the open sea beyond the 12 mile limit, arrested him, and he when he when I came on board. Because I was on the command ship, and I went on board, and he looked at me and said, Israeli? I said, no, FBI. And he said, (laughs) (laughs) and there's pictures of me having a coffee and donuts with him the next morning. (laughs) And the reason is, we had him locked into the hijacking. What we were searching for was intelligence on our hostages. And the, the courts in Washington gave me hell because we interrogated him, quote, unquote, for three days. Drinking coffee and having donuts.
2: Buck, we have a question right here. Yes. I have a question about the really two notions, and and not from and not how the FBI would see it, but how you see it, being with the FBI. The concept of national sovereignty, and in other words, a, a government maintaining control within its own borders, and then the FBI's adoption of the policy of extra, what they call extraterritorial. Um, justice, justice, jurisdiction, Jurisdiction, right, right. so if I go to another country Mm -hmm. and something happens to me, I'm protected by American law, how do you reconcile the notion of if our citizens go anywhere, we can do anything, I mean, don't get me wrong, I like the idea of it, (laughs) but uh, and also allow for people thinking that, well, the concept of national sovereignty, right, you feel Mm -hmm. you're not sovereign if another power can come in and do something
0: like that? Well, um, the fact is that you have jurisdiction doesn't give you sovereign rights. So when you go into a country, uh, you, you go in with the authority and permission of the host, go, host government. One exception to that is where you have a place like Somalia where there is no functioning government. Now, it's not to say that uh, there might not have been some renditions by some other people that didn't meet that standard, but that was the standard we had because we knew that when we brought them back we were going to have to take them before a federal judge uh, and uh, we were going to have to substantiate the legality of our process. So, we always had, except in this case I mentioned to you, where we used deception uh, to get um, our our, uh, target out into international waters and we never touched foreign soil until, never, Uh, We flew off an aircraft carrier from the carrier directly to Andrew's Air Force Base, and his feet never touched foreign territory. Um, The fact is that if you don't have the ability to move in and uh, exercise U.S. jurisdiction, uh, there's going to be many, many more victims. Um, But you can't create a situation where Your embassy gets closed down, and your you know uh, all of your spooks get kicked out, and so forth. Um, So it has to be done as a matter of diplomacy, a matter of self interest, and um, with the proper process.
2: Mr. Holborn,
1: in many cases, when you have one percent of a group that is the radical part causing all the
2: problems, you kind of expect group itself work now, are we getting much intelligence are we getting much help or do you expect that kind of
0: thing coming out of the Muslim world uh, it's very difficult because there's a stigma uh, within the, the Muslim world about working against any other Muslim but we do have uh, Muslim groups that are working with us and there are several there's thousands of jihadist websites there's several good moderate Islamic websites that preach the right things, try and reach out and do the right things. Um, it's been estimated that um, 10% of the mosques and madrasas, uh, schools, uh, are being taught the Wahhabi, which is actually the Salafist view of Islam. Hopefully the other 90% are being taught you know, the the, uh, the Sufi brand, uh, the the more moderate brand of, of Islam. Um, there's actually some 32 different Korans, uh, and um, uh, they are, in many ways, you wouldn't recognize them as the same book. But the same is true uh, if you look at the Old Testament and some of the things in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, today we were, we would be abhorred by, but uh, that was what the language in, the, in in those days was understood. So, uh, I'm not excusing the fact that uh, the Koran is used as a justification. But uh, you can go to any religion, literally in the world, and find justification for violence, and it has been used by Catholics and Protestants and, and Jews and uh, every other uh, religion that I'm aware of. So uh, it's simply that within Islam, uh, it's more prolific and at this point more dangerous.
2: We have time for three more questions, sir. You're not getting much
1: intelligence.
0: From um. You. I'm not really in a good position to answer that. Um, I do know that there is some intelligence, and you'll actually see some books coming out where people have provided information and are now writing about it. Um, so there is some cooperation, and there's also a lot of moderates that see themselves as being uh, the first victims. Uh, I've been told by some Muslim friends that they, can't, they don't feel free to go to their mosque anymore that they have feel that uh, they have been excluded by the, the radicalism that has taken over.
2: We've got time for two more questions. One, two, and three. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you very much for at least making a statement that, that the, uh, the radical element is a very minuscule part of, 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 of the Muslim population. Uh, because when we, and, and I think 99.999% of the Muslims when we heard about Fort Hood, we were all praying that, that please that don't be a Muslim. Absolutely. And so on. No, because, because what happens is that one person sets back the whole Muslim population decades, you know, if not years. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, this was one Muslim and, and many Muslims have served the armed forces over many years. And you've had one person, and, and, and this was the case where you have a drunken driver being followed by a policeman sees the man is drunk and won't pull him over. And if he gets into a crash, we all worry about why he got into a crash. This was a case where he was holding his hand out, raising his hand, saying, look, I've got an issue, and nobody stopped him. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I can't defend him, but I mean, there were people who knew this was an issue and we didn't stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess the, the authorities are as much to blame as, as the person who did the act, because if we saw a person who did, who's got an issue uh, and we just not stop it. Your second, you know, your statement about the Quran being 32 types, you may be talking about interpretation of the Quran, but the right. Quran is just one book, you
0: know. Yeah, I'm talking about the different interpretations,
2: interpretation, yes. Sir. Yeah, because the Quran is one. And, and, and the Quran, you know, I, I, I still, if, if I want, I've told people, you know, show me where I can go in the Quran. If I want to be a radical, what can I read in the Quran that will make me radical? And I haven't found that, you know.
0: I can send you some material that I think you would find that. No,
2: no, no. Because, 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 you know, the, the verses that talk about war, there are actually 62 verses in the Quran, at least 62 verses that refer to, to, to fighting, but it's always in the context of defense, never in the context of offensive. As of a fact, it says that if, a, if an enemy chooses to, to seek peace, then you have no right to continue fighting. So, you know, so it, it's, it's the way, that's the way I have read the Quran, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's not very, I and mean, it's, it's, it's very easy to follow in that sense. Um, so, so you really, it, it's the sad part is like your question, you know, where, where should all 4,000 of the other Muslims should be investigated? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, I mean, your question is not, you know, inappropriate, but the, the 4,000 Muslims all of a sudden are suspects. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, they're, 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 they're <coughs> comrades in arms cannot trust them anymore. I used to
0: get the same sort of complaints from people uh, that were of Italian and Sicilian descent uh, living in South Philly. Uh, and there was uh, maybe a million of them and probably 200 people in the mob in South Philly. Uh, did did yeah did we uh, you know look at all two, all a million Italians and Sicilians uh, as mobsters? Uh, absolutely not. So uh, you have to you have to keep into perspective that uh, uh, there are elements within uh, the Muslim society. There have been elements in, uh, for instance, uh, very recently with the uh, abortion uh, uh, doctor killed in, in Kansas. Uh, you know, This man was acting on his religious beliefs that, that killed him. Uh, the um, neo-Nazi that walked into the Holocaust Museum, he was acting uh, what he thought was uh, God's uh, direction. Uh, there are examples, as I said, across the entire uh, religious spectrum. But today unfortunately, um, there is more activity uh, within the, that small percentage of Islam that we talked about.
2: You know, and also I guess one more just one more we'll no, just a reminder yeah. that I, I, I'm sure you saw it on, I read it on CNN uh, <laughs> website about the jihadi code that the, 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 the people in Libya have come out with. Have you read about that? supposed to be on cnn on, on november the
0: 15th the code it's called the,
2: it's called the jihadi code where where they talk about how it is inappropriate to attack women and children uh-huh. in 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 you mean like uh
0: Sudan, i mean like uh that uh, they did with pan am 103
2: <laughs> no i no i mean i'm I, I, I let's let's okay, thank for cool. your comments yeah do
1: appreciate it right,
0: thank you. where was the other one next one yes,
1: yes sir thanks first about uh, Thank you very much for your comments tonight. Thank you, secondly, for your service. Um, for the gentleman down below, I appreciate his comments. I have, I still continue to struggle with your comments, like in the Muslim world, uh, there's 1%, 10%, or whatever. When I can feel that the Muslim religious leadership, their social leadership, their economic leadership stands up and says, this is not right, then I'll feel a little bit better. I have a feeling, too, that there's a passive acceptance of what goes wrong. And I, you know, and this is difficult for me to reconcile. I appreciate your-
0: One of the things that is occurring, and it's very unfortunate, is those who do stand up and speak out don't get the coverage or the attention that those who are, not, are taking the, the alternate path. And there are many, many uh, that have and are uh, a very close friend and business associate of mine is uh, Egyptian Muslim and he has thousands of articles that he's posted and he's made hundreds of speeches. Uh, I have another uh, Muslim friend who's coming in from Vancouver uh, next weekend uh be staying here with me that I do business with all over the world. Uh, you know, we don't need to be afraid of having relationships uh, with uh, the Muslim community. We need to be careful uh, only when there are signs that indicate that a person or a small group has taken uh, a radical tact and is now a, a danger to other Muslims as well as to them to us.
1: Yes. Okay. So by, what, what I hear you say is the media is not giving appropriate attention to the uh, neutrality, to the balance, to the um, objectivity of, of the Muslim religion. Mm-hmm. Because I don't hear it. i got to tell you, I don't hear it. I know you
0: don't. And, and that is a problem. And it's uh, one that it media problem? There's a, a website that, um, that uh, posts um, um, articles from the Middle East. Uh, it's called Memory uh, Middle East Media Research Institute. And um, they have a standing order to publish every positive article that comes out of the Middle East. Uh, and they do unfortunately they're still outweighed by the media, which is largely government controlled well, we can say it's entirely government controlled in areas where uh, the governments, even though they want to have a relationship with the u s use the media as a way of letting off steam against uh, an outside uh, you know against the the, the United States. Um, some of the things coming out of Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Jordan, who are our allies. Uh, that are government owned uh... would curl your hair if you had any left
1: And also but there's quite a difference sometimes we see what's published in english in right. these countries versus what's published in absolutely
0: Europe. uh... there is is two uh... many instances particularly out of government controlled uh... newspapers they will be published in english usually in london uh... and they will be much tamer in their uh... critique and criticism than those that are published in country uh... and that uh is intended to deflect the anger with the government and def- towards uh, the West and particularly uh, uh, the United <laughs> States. Roland,
2: uh, last question.
1: Uh, Buck, I didn't want you to leave this evening without enlisting another hundred or so agents. <laughs> a lot of us travel extensively internationally, and I've had two occasions to call the CIA when I got back from a trip. One was a very pleasant experience, the other one was less satisfactory. Do you have any advice to us as to what we can observe that would be worthwhile to our intelligence services when we're traveling?
0: Well, there was a, when I was in, there was a standing program that when persons that were involved in business of interest, uh, technology and science and research, and et cetera, um, that we would initially interview that person. And if we found significant uh, information, we would have the CIA officer come in and and do a debrief Um, that should still be available Um, and obviously the if when you're traveling overseas uh, and you see something you don't have to wait till you get back you can go into uh, the legal attache or the regional security officer in every embassy and say you know I saw this happen you ought to be aware of it and in fact uh, that is exactly what is needed is for not just Americans but for all uh, members of society who are concerned with the violence of any terrorist group including here in the United States by domestic terrorist organizations um, it's not wrong to report your concern your concern can lead to uh, the opening of an inquiry an inquiry can lead to the opening of an investigation and an investigation can lead to a preemption of a, a terrorist act or a prosecution or both so it's a it's a the right thing for a citizen to do. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.